choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 277 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 13, Approaching the Moon. This is Apollo Control at 70 hours, 24 minutes. A decision has been made to perform the Paracentian plus two-hour maneuver. This will be a dock a docked uh, descent propulsion system burn of approximately uh, 900 feet a second and uh, will bring landing in the Pacific Ocean at 142 hours elapsed time. We'll be passing up to the crew a procedure shortly for them to perform a sun check in the alignment optical telescope of the lunar module so that we may uh, better understand what the present limb inertial platform alignment is. If as a result of this sun check the platform looks good, we will perform the maneuver without a platform realignment. If it does not look good and uh, the limits on this have been defined as plus or minus one degree, we will do what is termed an Earth-Sun option alignment before going into the dark behind the moon and set up the attitude of the spacecraft so that the crew can can uh, mark on a good star while they're in the dark to check the Earth-Sun alignment that uh, they would have performed previously. Apollo 13 now is 203,957 nautical miles from Earth. Velocity is 2,894 feet per second. Near the moon, in the cockpit of Aquarius, Jim Lovell, Jack Swigert, and Fred Hayes were not thinking about platform alignment verification using the sun. The celestial body that was claiming most of their attention was much, much smaller thousands of times less distant, and was getting bigger and closer by the minute. The closer Aquarius and Odyssey got, the more time the crew, despite themselves, spent stealing glances out the windows. They didn't yield to the impulse much at first, and indeed they couldn't afford to yield to it much. The communications system still demanded their constant attention, The ships themselves still required regular thermal rotation. The pre-PC plus two power up was coming soon, and the debris cloud still had to be monitored for some clearing 
that might reveal stars. But no matter how dense the cloud became, no amount of floating debris could conceal the immense white and gray sphere hanging in front of them. The moon the crew was approaching was a gibbous moon, about 70% illuminated, with only a fat crescent on the western edge lost in darkness. At such close range, the limb's small triangular windows were completely covered by the large lunar bulk, and in order to take in the entire shape, the crewmen had to lean far forward, craning their necks as far as their limited portholes would allow. For Lovell, the proximity was starting to become a cause for concern. At the moment, his twin ships were about as far from the lunar mountaintops as an airplane leaving Lisbon from its intended destination in Sydney. And Odyssey and Aquarius were moving six times faster than the jet. Lovell pushed away from his window and turned to his limb pilot uneasily. How do you think they're coming with the alignment business, Fredo? He asked. Can't be too great or we'd heard something, Hayes said. Well, our margin of error is vanishing pretty fast. By 4,400 feet per second, Hayes said, glancing at his computer's velocity display. What do you say we get them on the line and see if we can't hurry things along, Lovell said. Before Hayes could transmit the message, however, Houston hailed the ship. Aquarius Houston, the Capcom called. From the sound of the voice, it appeared that Vance Brand, another rookie astronaut, had replaced Joe Kerwin at the Capcom console. Go ahead, Houston, Hayes said. Okay, uh, what we're uh, getting a procedure ready for you is to do an AOT sun check at approximately 74 hours, or in uh, just a little over three hours. Uh, that'll be a detent two. We'll have a detailed procedure up uh, shortly, and it will include the rendezvous radar redesignation to get it out of the way and a P-52 maneuver to the attitude. Uh, it's our feeling that if uh, that checks out within one degree, that your platform will be okay for the burn without a subsequent P-52. Uh, if it's not within one degree, uh, we are working up an Earth-Sun alignment procedure uh, to uh, align the platform. And uh, we'll have that up to you later. Okay, uh, uh, assuming that the, uh, that the start, that the sun check is, uh, is okay, we will uh, then give you a star for a confidence check on the backside when you're in the darkness. We'll be updating a, uh, a burn pad to you prior to LOS going around the moon. Uh, we'll have another look at, uh, at you after AOS and we'll update the pad if, if required. Uh, right now that update should be very small. Over. Hayes repeated the instructions to make sure he had heard correctly, then broke off the air and turned to Lovell and Swigert with a questioning expression. Of the three men on board, Hayes was not necessarily the one most qualified to determine the soundness of the plan. Swigert, as navigator of this flight, and Lovell, as the first navigator of the first flight ever to go to the moon, were a good deal better versed in the science of celestial steering. 
How's that sound to you? Hayes asked. Well, it should confirm our alignment, Lovell said. Then he turned to Swigert. How's it sound to you? Kind of imprecise method, don't you think? Swigert said. Very imprecise, Lovell agreed. What margin of error did they say they're giving us? One degree, which is two suns. It's like aiming for the side of a barn. The question is, Swigert said, do you have any better ideas? Lovell paused. None at all, he said. Do you? Nope. Call them back, Lovell said, turning to Hayes. Let's get started. Hayes got Capcom back on the line, and he began reading the limb pilot the techniques for the sun check. As conceived by Dietrich, Russell, and Reed, and as tested by Duke and Young, the procedure would be relatively straightforward. Lovell would begin by telling the computer he wanted to look through the alignment telescope at the face of the sun. For accuracy's sake, he would specify which quadrant, or, as the guidance men like to say, which limb of the sun. In this case, Reed, Russell, and Dieterich had picked the northeast limb. When the computer had processed the command, Lovell would punch the proceed button, and the Lunar Module's 16 thrusters would automatically fire, driving the spacecraft around toward the spot where the computer believed the sun would be. If the upper right limb of the giant star floated within one degree of the crosshairs in Lovell's highly filtered telescope, he would know his alignment was satisfactory. If it didn't, he would know he was in trouble. Lovell listened to Capcom Vance Brand's instructions, allowed Hayes to repeat them back to the ground, and then asked Houston questions. Like, had Duke and Young run their simulations with the mock limb in a docked configuration? Yes, the Capcom assured him they had. Had the guidance system had any trouble maneuvering the ship with all the added weight? No, it hadn't. Would the docking radar, which protruded from the top of the lunar module, obstruct the alignment telescope view of the sun? Not if the radar was retracted before the maneuver. The grilling took the better part of an hour. With Swigert and Hayes throwing in questions when they could, and with such astronauts as Duke, Young, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, and Dave Scott being rounded up in mission control, to answer anything the Capcom and the guidance officers couldn't. Finally, at 2.30 in the afternoon, or 73 hours and 31 minutes into the mission, Lovell seemed satisfied and asked for permission to go ahead and do the sun check. Mission Control said okay. With that go-ahead, the crewmen assumed their workstations, and for the first time since Odyssey was shut down, there was work for Swigert to do. Lovell would position himself at the center of the instrument panel and tend the guidance computer, typing in the data necessary to initiate the sun check and watching the attitude indicators to see if the spacecraft was moving in the correct direction. Swigert would man Hayes' right-hand window, looking for the sun and alerting Lovell as it floated into view. Hayes would move over to Lovell's side, 
where he would peer through the alignment telescope and note where the crosshairs settled on the sun. In Houston, the ground crew assumed their stations as well. Flight Director Griffin called for quiet on the loop and asked the men standing behind the consoles to allow the men working them to focus on the job at hand. He pulled his flight log toward him, entered 7332 in the space marked ground elapsed time, and in the blank marked comments wrote, Begin Sun Check. In the spacecraft, Fred Hayes made a final adjustment to his communications hardware and, whether deliberately or accidentally, switched the system back over to hot mic. Instantly, the fractured voices of astronauts conferring among themselves were heard by the ground crew. I don't have all the confidence in the world in this, Lovell was heard saying. We'll get it, Hayes said. Don't be so sure. I still might have screwed up my arithmetic last night. Standing between his own station and his limb pilot's station, Lovell now entered into Aquarius's computer the information Capcom had called up to him. The computer accepted the data, processed it slowly, and then waited for Lovell to press proceed. With a glance first at Hayes and then at Swigert, Lovell pushed the button. For a second, nothing happened. Then, all at once, outside the windows, a fine mist of hypergolic gas appeared as the lander's thrusters fired. Inside, the astronauts could feel the ship beginning a lazy turn in the center of the cockpit. Lovell locked his gaze on the attitude needles. We've got roll, he called out. Now y'all, roll, pitch, y'all again. Houston, are you reading all this? Negative, Jim Brand said. We don't have a high bit rate coming down from the computer. Roger, Lovell acknowledged and turned to his right. You see anything yet, Jack? Nothing, Swigert answered. Anything over there? He asked Hayes. Not a thing. In the front row of mission control, Russell, Reed, and Dieterich listened to the crew and said nothing. At the Capcom station, Brand held his tongue until he was called again. At the flight director station, Griffin pulled his log toward him and scribbled the words, Sun Check, Initiated. On the air-to-ground loop, the fractured chatter continued to flow back from the crew. Y'all right side, Hayes could be heard saying. Commander's FDI. Dead ban option, Lovell responded. Plus 190, Hayes said. For close to eight minutes, the murmuring of the crew continued as Aquarius swung around and the controllers listened in silence. Then, from off the right side of the ship, Swigert thought he saw something. A small flash. Then nothing. Then a flash again. All at once, unmistakably, a tiny degree of the solar arc flowed into the corner of his window. He snapped his head to the right, then turned back to the left to alert level. But before he could say anything, a shard of sunbeam fell across the instrument panel and Lovell looked up with a start.
Understand it checks out. We're kind of glad to hear that. It's not quite centered, but it's about a diameter or a little bit less, around, around a diameter just to one side. Sounds good. In Mission Control, where only moments before Gerald Griffin had called for absolute quiet, a whoop went up from the retro Fido and Guido in the first row. It was taken up by the Inco and the Telmu and the Surgeon in the second row. Across the room, an undisciplined, unprecedented, utterly un-NASA-like ovation slowly spread. Houston Aquarius, Lovell called through the noise. Did you copy that? Copy, Brand said through his own broad grin. It's not quite centered, the commander reported. It's a little bit less than a radius to one side. It sounds good. Brand glanced over his shoulder and smiled at Griffin, who grinned back and let the celebration go on around him. Disorder was not a good thing in mission control, but for a few more seconds at least, Griffin would allow it. He pulled his flight log toward him, and in the blank space under the ground elapsed time, he wrote 73 hours 47 minutes. In the space under the comments column, he scribbled, Sun check complete. Looking down, the flight director discovered for the first time that his hands were shaking. Looking at the page, he discovered for the first time, too, that his last three entries were completely illegible. We're now at 75 hours, 6 minutes, and show a distance away from the moon of 5,828 nautical miles, uh, 13 now traveling at 4,497 feet per second relative to the moon. Now, at 6.30 in the evening, as Apollo 13 closed to within 1,500 miles of the moon, less than the distance of a single lunar diameter, the ship and the sun at last began to part ways. Like all other lunar spacecraft, Odyssey and Aquarius were approaching the moon from its western edge. In the case of a gibbous moon, that meant its shadowed edge. The closer the spacecraft got, the deeper it moved into that darkness. Though some ambient light still shined on the spacecraft, all that reflected up from the surface and into the windows of the steadily darkening cockpit was a weak, shimmering earthshine. What this deepening gloom also meant was that less and less light was reflecting off the sparkling debris cloud that still surrounded the ships. As of an hour ago, Lovell, Hayes, and Swigert resumed their customary left, right, and rear stations. And as Hayes poured over his engine burn checklist and Swigert lent a hand where he could, Lovell returned to his window. Okay, hand me the uh, eyepiece. I got Scorpio. Yeah? Yeah, and Antares. They're all coming out. Swigert said, straining for a glimpse through Lovell's window. You said it, Lovell said. There's Noonkey, there's Ontarius. We may have enough for that confidence check. Swigert agreed. We've probably got more than enough. Do you want to let them know? Hayes asked. 
Yeah, Level said. Uh, Houston, uh, Aquarius. Go ahead, Jim, over. Roger, be advised, I'm now seeing uh, Ed Terry's and Nutke uh, in the AOT. And I uh, just want to know whether you want me to try to do a B-52. Uh, Roger, stand by. We copy the stars you're seeing. Uh, stand by on a P-52. That's Jim Lovell reporting star sightings uh, through the eyepiece of, in the l lunar module. In mission control, Brand clicked off the air-to-ground loop and onto the flight director's loop to confer with his guido. True to the rumors that had been circulating around mission control for most of the day, Krantz's group had come back on console about two hours ago and intended to stay for the next few hours at least. For much of the afternoon, Milt Wendler's maroon team had been standing by at the edges of the Mission Control Auditorium, ready to relieve Griffin's group when their shift ended shortly before sundown. But Krantz had put out the word to the room at large, and to his friend Wendler in particular, that at the risk of bruising feelings, he'd just as soon send his own team out to handle the PC Plus 2 burn, and let Wendler's team take over later. Two hours ago, at 4.30 p.m., the Tiger team came out of room 210, fanned out among mission control, and commandeered the consoles they had vacated at 10.30 the previous evening. Griffin's goal controllers, who were minutes away from being relieved anyway, surrendered their seats and retreated to the aisles to join Wendler's maroon team. Now, as Brand reviewed the alignment plans with Bill Finner, the white team Guido, and Finner reviewed them with Krantz, the first differences between the white team's stewardship of the flight and the gold team emerged. Krantz denied permission for the star check that Lovell wanted to do to help confirm the accuracy of his platform. The alignment level had transferred from Odyssey last night had proven itself adequate during the free return burn and had been recertified during the makeshift sun check. Krantz believed that fiddling around with things now was just asking for trouble and was certain to squander both thruster fuel and time. He passed his decision on to Capcom. Hey, uh... Houston, uh, a correction, uh, Aquarius, uh, Houston, uh, we're satisfied with our present alignment. Uh, uh, we don't want you to uh, waste any more uh, RCS gas uh, trying to do this P-52. And uh, be advised, uh, you guys are uh, hot mic if you haven't heard of them. Okay, Lovell pushed the microphone away and turned to Hayes with a slight eye roll and said, First time in the whole flight we've got stars, and now we don't want to use them. They're nervous about messing things up for the burn, Hayes said, trying to be diplomatic. I'm nervous about messing things up before we even get there, replied Lovell.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 277 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 13, Approaching the Moon. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure bringing it to you. I want to give a big shout out to all my longtime listeners. Thanks for staying subscribed and extend a warm welcome to my new listeners. I'm glad you're here. Are you looking for old episodes of the podcast? Episodes 1 through 98 are available on iTunes, Google Play, and all your favorite podcatchers. Just look for the Space Rocket History Archive. Today, we salute my moon emoji donors. These donors have donated for three years in a row and received the moon emoji next to their name on the donors page. Thank you for your continued support, moon emoji donors. Okay, I had a couple afterthoughts after this episode. First, I want to credit my sources. Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin. Failure is Not an Option by Gene Krantz. Flight by Chris Kraft. The Apollo 13 Flight Journal. The Johnson Space Center. The Internet Archive. And Wikipedia. I tried to use as many of the clips as possible from this episode, but some of them were so noisy the voices were just about indistinguishable. So I put everything that was possible that I could find that was you could at least tell what the person was saying. So I had to read out some of the parts there. My number one source for this series has been Lost Moon by Jim Lovell. And running a close second is the Apollo 13 Flight Journal. It still surprises me that a book that has been published since 1994 still has typographical errors. In this particular episode, the time Lovell quoted for loss of signal was two hours earlier than it actually happened. But the minutes were correct, so somehow a 77 got turned into a 75. Also, there are events happening in his book that are a little out of sequence with how they occurred in life. But don't get me wrong. Lost Moon is an excellent book, and I highly recommend it. And I, it has been the main source that I have used for these episodes. It's a great book. I felt kind of bad for Jim after they found Nunke and Ontaries, and he wanted to do a platform alignment check. The stars could finally be seen, and yet he wasn't allowed to perform the alignment because Gene Krantz considered it a waste of fuel and time. Jim was finally upbeat and excited to do something here, and Krantz sort of put the brakes on him for that, so I kind of felt bad for him because he was ready to do something, and, and he wanted to have that assurance that he was on the right alignment too. But in the end... Krantz made the right decision, he, and he was proven right in the end. He, there was no need to waste any more fuel or time doing another alignment. I just kind of felt sorry for Jim. Okay, I have added the audio for this episode and uh, a few pictures on the podcast homepage, spacerockethistory.com. hope you check that out. We were pleased to receive several donations to support the podcast over the past week. Christopher B. donated at the Orion level. Wayne and Naomi H. 
sent in another donation and moved to the Salyut Skylab level with their rocket, moon, satellite, and shooting star emojis. Thank you. Matt S. from the UK donated at the Vostok level. Jim B. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Dana R. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Lynn C. pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level and earned a rocket emoji. And Mr. Big Poopert pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. Well, we lost seven patrons over the billing cycle from October to November. So we are back down to 195 Patreons with a goal of reaching 218 for 2018. We have less than two months left in the year, so that will require about 23 Patreons if we make our goal. Our total donors for 2018 have reached 375 with a goal of reaching 418 in 2018. So that leaves us about 38 donors short of the goal. For those of you who are enjoying the content provided here and have not donated yet in 2018, please consider supporting the podcast if you're financially able. Keep in mind, Space Rocket History is entirely listener-funded. I depend upon your financial support to keep the podcast going. And now, in this time of year, is where you can make the emoji maneuver. See, emojis are placed next to your name on the donors page as longevity awards. Two years in a row is a rocket, three years is a moon, four years a satellite, and five years a shooting star. And we'll have something else for next year. To execute the emoji maneuver, you just need to make a contribution before the end of this year and then make one in January so you can advance up an emoji level in less than two months. To support the podcast, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button to make a one-time donation or the Patreon link to make small monthly donations. All donors are rewarded with their name on the donors page at the level they choose to donate. For those of you who have already donated for 2018, I appreciate it very much. This week, we're giving away the new official SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky donors. Mrs. SRH randomly selected Steve Crow. Steve Crow, if you would email me and tell me your address, I will mail this out to you. Mike at SpaceRocketHistory.com Okay, folks, that's all I have for this week. I'll do my best to get episode 278 out by next Thursday. So long for now.